Good evening, Wisdom Eccentrics by Natang Rumshe, Chapter 23. What is important, Rumshe concluded, is that you're able to have the fearlessness of a brigand and the heart of a kind mother. Do you think you can be like this? Yes, Rumshe. It seems entirely possible, I grinned whilst I have the mind of an old monk. Chapter 23, Just Say When. Today I have a special story, Rinpoche began. This concerns Dokiense and Dujum Lingpa. Do you know of Dujum Lingpa? The previous incarnation of Kyabje Dujum Jigdrel Yeshe Dorje, Rinpoche, Oh, yeah. Then you know well. There is a special connection here, as there is between us. And this kind of recognition concerns being a real yogi, being an authentic Nakpa. All real Gurkha Changlo yogis and yoginis share this because we are the Vajrasanga of Guru Rinpoche and Yeshit Sogyal. Dokiense rode out of a dream and a premonition. He told no one of his dream. No one asked. Questions at such a time would not have been appreciated, and his disciples were well aware of that fact. A party of yogis, having mounted their horses in great haste, followed him in a ragged line. It was evident that Dokiense had something in mind. He wasn't lingering much to admire the view. Not that there was much view in the last darkness of the dregs of night. There were no stars. There was no moon to guide their way. But the plains were flat to a distance beyond the dawn, so they galloped into the brooding lack of definition, allowing their horses to feel out the land that spread before them. It had been a stormy night, Dragons discussing personal matters at an impossible altitude above the mountain peaks. The air was shrill and damp and cold. His disciples had no idea where they were going, but they knew there was no use in being late. Dokiense had simply suggested, Those who wish can mount up and follow me. An unaccountable announcement. After an expeditious breakfast, which was somewhat less than adequate, his disciples had little time to prepare. Only those who were always ready, just as they were, managed to make the departure in time. Dokiense was given to sudden decisions which propelled his disciples into unlikely ventures. And so the word to ride out in haste into the darkness that preceded the dawn came as no great surprise. His close disciples were all aware a great honour had been allowed them. The dawn creaked into gear and shapes began explaining what they were. Pallid light rattled the ominous cloud base. They rode for some time with a sense of growing urgency and climbed higher and higher into the stark reaches of the mountains. Finally, they struck the track which led to a notorious high pass in the mountains, 
a place known to be a thoroughgoing lair of demons. Dolciense's disciples had gradually assimilated the idea that they were headed for this wretched place, and an atmosphere of grim resolution settled on them. There was no turning back. They knew that no one made their way over that pass unless it was high noon, but they had arrived amongst those lugubrious crags in the cold ashen hues of first light. Their horses slowed to a walk, their nostrils steaming. They picked a careful way onward through desolate tracts of mountain scree and the discomforting shades of an overcast dawn. The track came and went unaccountably, swept away by the occasional landslides which had ravaged the slopes. After several hours of eerie plodding, they ascended to the high point of the pass, and when they arrived, an uneasy hiatus ensued. Having brought his horse to a halt, Dolciense simply sat motionless in the silence, staring out into a distant blur of ill-defined colours. He gave no indication that this was where they'd stop. He gave no indication that they could dismount either, so they simply sat and waited. Dolciense was evidently waiting, so they waited with him. After some time, they heard the far sounds of movement. Gradually, the dull rattle of horses' hooves in the distance could be heard, coming up toward them from the other side of the pass. Various thoughts crossed his disciples' minds as they observed Dolciense unsling his favourite rifle and lay it across his saddle. He checked the weapon briefly, but with the confident care of one who had performed the action on countless occasions. Maybe there were bandits coming towards them. No, Dolciense left his rifle draped casually across his saddle and cradled it gently with his hands, maybe simply for the pleasure of holding it. It soon became apparent that another band of yogis were clattering up the track toward them from the south, rocks croaking under the passage of their winding ascent. At the head of the approaching party was an impressive young Gurkachanglo Lama with a rifle slung across his back. He looked every inch like a younger brother of Dolciense. It was the great Teton, Dujam Lingpa. His extensive beard was unusual for a Tibetan. His bell and vajra rings, one studded with a ruby, the other with a diamond, caught the light as he allowed the reins to slip and gave his horse freedom to make the steep gradient of the final rise. There was not much doubt amongst their respective followers that the two lamas were expecting to meet, but it was slightly disconcerting when neither spoke. They simply gazed at each other, as if each were looking at his own reflection in a mirror. As if on cue, the sun sparked out into full visibility from behind the distant black mass of stone. Dolciense, prompted by this sign, began to open a leathern bag that had been hanging at his waist. He loosened the leather thongs that held the bag closed and slowly drew out an iron disc about the size of a hand with splayed-out fingers. He turned the disc around in his hand for a moment or two, surveying its surface. It was smooth but unpolished, black as his gun barrel. 
After gazing at its surface, he hurled it high into the air. In a flash, Dudrum Lingpa's rifle was at his shoulder, sights lined up on the iron disc. A fierce crack was followed by a startling clang that resounded in the sky until the disc hit the ground some moments later. It was as if an enormous gong had been struck. Within the vibration were strange harmonics which sounded to some disciples like the tones of Gyalings and Silnyens playing. Others heard Rolmos and Dungchens. Some heard seed syllables. Dokiense smiled. One of Dokiense's disciples dismounted and ran to find the disc. Dujum Lingpa slung his rifle onto his back again and with a deft movement swung halfway down from his horse to scoop up a stone. The one he found, almost immediately, was about the size of a large potato. As if it were carefully choreographed, he swung back into his saddle and flung the rock into the sky. With equal ease, Dokiense lined up his sights as the stone reached the zenith of its trajectory and blasted it into minute fragments in the air. The dust of the shattered rock drifted in the wind and the disciples saw a variety of shapes materialise and disappear. Some saw Garkils and Jungdrungs. Some saw Tigles. Some saw a flying Garuda which, when it vanished, left them looking at an eagle circling high in the sky. The two great yogis laughed loudly. Dujam Lingpa smiled. There's nothing I have that you need, and there's nothing I can teach you. Dokiense smiled in return. There's nothing I can teach you either, but there is something you have that I will need. Just say the word. You could, Dokiense grinned, arrange a roof over my head one day. Dujum Lingpa laughed. Sure, there can be no doubt of that. Consider it arranged. I will be waiting. Just say when. Oh, in some years, there's no great hurry. Dujum Lingpa made an affirmative gesture. And where? Dokiense nodded and indicated the direction he had hurled the iron disc. With that, they parted, never to meet again in Dokiense's life. Dokiense's disciple, Jigme Dorje, having retrieved the disc, offered it back to his teacher. But Dokiense declined. Keep it for me for the while. You will return it to Dudrum Lingpa one day. I will tell you when. Jigme Dorje received the leathern bag for the disc from Dokiense's hand, attached it to his belt and mounted his horse. The two great lamas turned their horses and were followed by their respective disciples down either side of the pass. They returned to their gars. Nothing further was said about the episode. The years passed. Almost no one knew what the occurrence was supposed to have meant. It was obviously a highly auspicious event, and all took it to be the most profound transmission. 
Some took it to be a display of siddhis for the benefit of the respective disciples of the two lamas. But tying this idea in with the words that had passed between them was not possible. At the time when Dokiense was about to pass away, Dujum Lingpo was sitting with a group of his disciples. Jigme Dorje had come at that time to take teachings from Dujum Lingpa, as advised by his teacher Dokiense. Now Jigme Dorje was sad to have been sent from his master's side so close to his death, but he'd been sent with specific instructions. It was obviously of great importance to Dokiense that Jigme Dorje was with Dujum Lingpa at that precise time. Now, it came to pass that Dokiense passed away whilst Dujum Lingpa was celebrating the Vajra Tsokkolo feast with his disciples. Moments after the death of Dokiense, something unusual happened, but again few understood what it meant. Dujum Lingpa and his disciples were eating together, having concluded the yogic songs of their Tsokkolo feast. The Khandros, led by Dujum Lingpa's Sangyum, were bringing tea for the assembly, when Dujum Lingpa froze, wide-eyed, for a moment. In the stillness which ensued, all conversation died abruptly, and with ferocious suddenness, Dujum Lingpa yelled out a violent POCK! The disciples were stunned. Several momentarily lost consciousness. At that moment, Dujum Lingpa's Sangyum threw the tea urn into the air and appeared to faint. The disciples were all drenched with hot tea, but miraculously none were scalded. Many felt as if they had received the vase empowerment from Dujum Sangyum. When Dujum Sangyum arose, she was radiant and joyful. She called to the disciple of Dokiense, Jigme Dorje! The promise has been fulfilled. You can now give my husband the iron disc that you carry in that leathern bag at your side. Sure enough, there it was. Jigme Dorje was amazed. No one knew that he had the iron disc with him. Dokiense had simply told him to carry it with him when he went to take transmission from Dujum Lingpa. The fragments of the bullet which disintegrated on contact with the disc had formed a pattern like a melong, and Jigme Dorje unwrapped it with care out of the same leathern bag from which it had been drawn on that previous inexplicable occasion. Only three of those present understood the portent of what had happened. Dujum Lingpa understood because he had fulfilled his promise. He had been expecting Jigme Dorje to arrive at some point in the future, because he had been the one to have run after the disc. Jigme Dorje understood because he had retrieved the iron disc and promised Dokiense to return it to Dujum Lingpa at a time in the future that he would indicate. Dujum Sangyum understood because nothing was hidden from her and because she became the mother of the next incarnation of Dokiense Yeshe Dorje. This was a wonderful story. There's something 
I'd like to ask about this story, Rinpoche. It's not that I don't understand what happened. It's just that I can't imagine something like this happening in the West. There is a level of symbolism, secrecy and mystery that's culturally Tibetan. So I'm just wondering what would happen in a different culture. Yeah, Rinpoche grinned. I mean, would there be some important difference if Dokiense and Dujum Lingpa had simply communicated mind to mind about the subject? Rinpoche yawned as my question unfolded. I wondered whether this was a bad sign, but decided that this was to think like an idiot. There was no point in entertaining such ideas. So, he answered, say that this had been the case. Say there was simply this mind-to-mind -mind communication. What then? What indeed? This was a question that had to be answered with the aplomb that Rinpoche had been trying to encourage in me. But the only answer that came to mind seemed altogether banal. I racked my mind for a more intelligent response, but soon had no choice but to spill out a solitary, puerile statement of the obvious. Then there wouldn't be a story, Rinpoche. Rinpoche smiled, a genuine smile. Something clicked at that moment and I knew I'd been clear. Right, there would not be a story. There wouldn't be a goddamn story. So, I blurted out, this story and many of the others you've told me were living teaching stories exactly when they happened. The lives of these masters were simply full to the brim with teachings which manifested in every situation as opportunities for transmission. Yeah, and so, Rinpoche grinned. Well, that's why there was no need for Dokiense and Dujum Lingpa to speak to each other when they met on the pass. They knew that all their actions created stories and they were aware of acting in such a way as would create an emblematic understanding that would be passed on, as you are passing it on to me. Rinpoche nodded with a look that betokened that this was the most natural and obvious conclusion to have drawn. When one looks into a mirror, one is simply free to observe what is there. One does not have to have a conversation with one's own reflection. After these words had settled into the many eager little hands of my grasping concept consciousness, I was suddenly jolted by the fact that various aspects of the story were almost frightening in their degree of dramatic irony. There were many opportunities for transmission in the sequence of events that unfolded, weren't there? Rinpoche nodded whilst ferreting in his shoulder bag for the pocket watch I had given him. It had a moon phase facility which he much admired. Tell me what you think, he answered, whilst continuing his search. Well, I answered, maybe both groups of disciples set out on a mystery ride at the suggestion of their lamas.
Yeah, possible. Maybe that was like entering the space or mandala in which empowerment was to take place. Then there were the sounds and shapes created out of the iron disc and stone being shot. Maybe these were the qualities of mantra and visualisation. Then there was the word empowerment, the few sentences spoken by Dokyense and Dujum Lingpa. It seems as if the whole event reflects an empowerment. Rinpoche nodded cursorily. So why can't this happen in the West? I had some answers, but they were all a bit apologetic. Well, I began, the West's so very different. Somehow the idea of a Lama getting a group of people to set out in cars or motorcycles for some unknown destination. I mean, it's possible, just rather unlikely. In the West, people need everything to be explained carefully before they'll do anything, even slightly unusual. And the kind of people who do unusual things without explanation tend to be idiots or mentally unstable. Rinpoche blew his nose at this point, but whether this was a reflection on me, idiots, or the West, or what I'd said about the West was not entirely clear. Well, he commented, you must know, but what makes you think that people in Tibet were different? Masters such as Dokyense simply inspired great faith, and only such lamas were known to act in such ways. Are there no such disciples in the West? This was not a question I could answer, and so I explained that I could only speak from what I had seen. There do seem to be disciples with great faith, especially around Dungsi Trinli Norba Rinpoche, but beyond that I have no idea whether faith proves itself over the course of the lives of students of other lamas. Faith is motivated by many different things in the West. I've seen a lot of short-term faith, and faith as a cloak for neurosis. Rinpoche considered what I had said, and after having questioned me for a while on what I meant by neurosis, commented, Relationships like this were also common in Tibet, but whatever the situation, what else could be different which would make such means of transmission unlikely in the West? This was no point to give up and tell my Lama that I didn't know, even though at that point I didn't know. This was the point at which I had to start looking at the questions involved with great agility. I grabbed at the first thing that presented itself and ran with it. It seems to me that the disciples of Dokyense were wise enough not to ask questions when the circumstances were clearly part of an experience that was being provided. No one asked, where are we going, Rinpoche? No one asked, what was the point of the display of fast and fancy shooting? That seems to be one big difference. People in the West would find it very difficult not to ask those questions. Why? Rinpoche asked with evident interest in my answer. Because, I replied, 
we always think that we can understand the answers that we will be given in answer to our questions. I get the feeling that the disciples in the story are all aware that understanding either dawns or it doesn't. These disciples are more used to learning through experience and we are more used to learning through the process of intellectual inquiry. A smile had been slowly emerging on Rinpoche's face as my explanations unfolded. I knew that there'd be another question for me as soon as I ran out of breath. Yeah, and so, he asked, immediately I'd concluded, which is better? I knew immediately what the answer was, but I didn't really know why. So I gave the answer and took the chance that reasons would occur to me on the hoof as our discussion proceeded. That neither and both, they both have advantages and disadvantages. Rinpoche gave a mixture of a shout and a laugh. Ha! Oh, yeah. Now you have become extremely wise. The eagle beer appeared at this point and two glasses were duly filled. Oh, yeah, he laughed again. Well, not so wise, Rinpoche. I'm not completely clear why neither approach is better. Which is better for you? I tend to come down on the side of the experiential approach in terms of what I feel. Rinpoche nodded in a friendly way and indicated that I should simply think aloud and work it out. Well, for those who can experience, for those whose openness to experience is clear, to ask questions would be to interrupt the flow of what they were observing. But for those who never understood what had happened, it could have been better to have asked questions, although possibly at a later point in terms of courtesy to their lama. Yeah, Rinpoche nodded. Sometimes people are just faithful tomyors. They have great faith and great idiocy also. Such people act with respect, which comes from devotion but they never learn anything. This was common in Tibet. The disciples who did not understand were too passive. To be passive in this way is to make respect into ignorance. You must always be active in relation to the teachings. There's a time to experience the display of the Lama and a time to ask questions. I thought about this for a moment. It occurs to me that stupidity takes many forms and that intellectual questioning is one of them. Yeah, Rinpoche responded. The habit of asking intellectual questions is as stupid as the habit of not asking any questions at all. Maybe the style of teaching through symbols will develop in the West, I ventured. Yeah, maybe there will be more understanding because those who missed the point will be able to ask. The important point is that one knows when to ask and when questions are an inappropriate interruption of the Lama's activity. You must not make the mistake of thinking that the Tibetan cultural habit with the teacher is better than the Western cultural habit.